That was good. Bless the Lord. All the people said, Amen. Amen. Awesome. Hey, we are getting really close to the end of our little journey through the 23rd Psalm. This is almost the last sermon. Uh, I think next Sunday will be the last sermon. So, um, time to do a little bit of reflective thinking, a little bit of review. I want you to just, in your own mind, as we begin this morning, turn to Psalm 23. And as you're doing that, reflect on all that you've learned through the 23rd Psalm. What is David, as he pens this psalm, teaching us specifically, listen, specifically about the character traits of God as representative in the picture of the shepherd in dealing with the sheep? Very specific stuff that we have learned, and those are enlightening to us. They help us to respond, and they help us to live faithfully, and mostly, they help us to be able to have a relationship with God. Now, we've read all the way through verse 6 in Psalm 23. Last week, we talked about preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup runs over. And what I want to focus in on now is this next phrase. I don't know, church... I don't know of a phrase, one small partial sentence in all of Scripture that is so profound as what we're about to read. It is huge in its impact. It's an awesome and powerful statement. It really truly is when we understand it. It's a divine and wonderful concept, this next statement that we're about to read. It's magnificent and great in its scope and its application to God's people as the sheep. But remember, please, it doesn't make half the sense that it should until we read it through the paradigm, through the understanding, through the lenses of the shepherd treating his sheep. And we've learned all of that. You, You sort of have to bring that back to memory. You have to surface all that we've learned and keep it close at hand when you read what we're about to read. And that's this statement. He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now, I want to tell you something, church. If we just insert that little phrase outside of the context of Psalm 23, and we just sort of say, oh, that sounds like a nice, you know what, we should put that on a Hallmark greeting card. It sounds so lovely. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And that just kind of has a feel-good sound to it, and, and um, you know, It sounds nice, but it doesn't carry the impact. It doesn't give the life-changing, transforming effect until you really look at it based on what we've already seen and understood that God has revealed to us about himself as the shepherd. And so I want to focus in on those character traits that he reveals to us. Surely, goodness and mercy. The shepherd gives these. The the goodness and the mercy that's going to follow us all the days of our life and never stop following us. Whatever it is about that goodness and mercy, we know this, that it comes from the shepherd. And it's because the shepherd has such a heart for his sheep, cares so intimately and deeply and provides for his sheep. Because that's true, the shepherd gives of himself, of his resources, so that what follows us is goodness and mercy all the days of our lives. Now, goodness really is very a, a very simple, generic, basic term in the passage here. It basically means pleasant benefit to you. Surely goodness. Something pleasant that's a benefit will follow you. It's very generic. And I think it's meant to be read in the original language 
in the structure that it's written in, attached to the next word. And the focus really is on the next word. And that's where we're going to spend our time, not only today, but concluding next week also. It says, surely goodness, pleasant benefit to you, and mercy. More specifically, the pleasant goodness comes in the form of this mercy that he has. And this mercy is a packed term in the Hebrew. It's a very remarkable and unusual word. It's a word we don't find anywhere else. It's a Hebrew word. And to understand it, we really have to go back and see where, where, how is it used and what does it really mean. It's translated mercy, but it's really, I'm going to give it to you in, in, the, in the Hebrew itself. And then I want you to just sort of practice that word. The, 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 the word mercy there really is the word chesed. Now I want you to say that with me. Before you do, I want you to make sure you get the Hebrew intonations, okay? Now, I'm going to try it without grossing you out. Get very close to my microphone. Listen carefully. Chesed. Chesed. Can you do that? Let's try it all together. One, two, three. All right. Now wipe the spit off the back of the head of the person in front. You, you just covered them in mercy. All the days of their life, it'll follow them. Mercy everywhere. Just spraying in the Chesed. That's what the word is. And it's really hard for us to understand and translate with, with one word. Mercy is probably the best. It's also translated loving kindness, steadfast love, or faithful love in the Old Testament. And we're going to see that as we study. Now, to understand this, I want you to turn back to the book of Exodus. We go all the way back to the beginning of God's interaction with his people, the Jewish people, the Hebrews. And by the way, as you're turning to Exodus... We won't finish the sermon this morning, so um, we'll get probably may, maybe half or a little over halfway done with the outline card, and then next week we'll finish that out, and that'll be the conclusion of the service. So just to let you know, if it seems like we're going at a very slow pace and you start looking at your watch and I lose you, it's okay. We're only going halfway, so we're going to take our time. Loving kindness, the mercy that's found. And really, one of the first times that we really gain a glimpse into the word as it's used here in the Hebrew is, is Exodus 34. In Exodus 34 and verse 6, it says this, And the Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, I'll give you a second to turn there, Exodus 34, that's okay. Exodus 34, 6. All right, this is Moses. I went too fast for you already, see, um, I do that. Slow me down. This is Moses. The people had literally just made the golden calf while Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. You remember that? And Moses came down and it was like, really, people? Seriously? Right? Talk about the waywardness of a people. I understand that. That's, that's literally God is now giving Moses the chance to, to do this again with the people. Verse 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, here it is, merciful and gracious long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. Now look at verse 7. Keeping, mark it, mercy, chesed, for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. This is one of the first times we really get an understanding of this term. Now let me just tell you three things about chesed, okay? Three things. Number one, this, this, this term, this word is used in the Hebrew as a recognized tie between two parties. It's, it's recognized that this word is dealing with a tie, a relationship, an agreement between two parties. It might be a covenant. 
It might be an agreement. It might be, let's say, for example, husband and wife. Those are two parties that are tied together, right? Right? You may not feel tied to them this morning, ladies, and I understand why. But you are, right? Nonetheless, and, and you got to go back to that contract, that agreement, that covenant, right? But, but because there's that tie and that agreement, you know that this word would then apply to that relationship. Or a, a contract, let's say, between an employer and an employee. There's, there's something that designates a, a, a tie, an agreement between those two parties. That's when the word is used. It's not general or indiscriminate in its use in the Old Testament. Never always used in reference to two parties that are contracted, tied, covenanted together. The theological importance of that, folks, is critical. We've got to see that because, because there's no English translation for this word. We, we can't just know what it means by looking at the translation. You have to look at the way it's used in the text, and that's what we're doing together. So the theological importance is that it refers to this attitude an attitude between two parties that they are supposed to be showing to one another. And more often than not, one specifically shows to the other. Now, we were not going to apply that to your marriage because hopefully in your marriage you have the same attitude of commitment to one another, right? But, but have, you, have you ever seen those, those agreements, those covenants, those, those contracts where one party is, is determined and faithful to uphold his part of the bargain, even when the other isn't, right? That's, that's sometimes the idea here. There's still an attitude that's expected, but one of them is faithful in that. The other one isn't always so faithful. That's the context it's found in, in the scriptures. Number two, the second thing we learn about its use in the Bible is it's shown in God's persistent love for Israel. This word chesed is almost always, almost exclusively I think there are one or two times where it's not used in this context, but almost always in reference to God and his people Israel. So that gives us some idea about the meaning of the word. It's impregnated with all this application and meaning. It's the loving kindness that God pursues his people even though they are wayward. Hello, It's the loving kindness that exists with God, within his heart, that leads him to pursue, go after. Never washing his hands of them, never turning his back on them, never walking away and giving up on them. A relentless pursuit of his people that he's made a covenant with. That's that's the application of this word that we're translating mercy or loving kindness, or steadfast love. You, you got to remember, um, this whole story of God with his people, you remember the Old Testament story? I, I'm telling you, we learn so much about God, his heart, and his ways by studying the Old Testament and how he related to and led his people Israel. As a matter of fact, that's really the foundation of our theology. So if you're one of those people that say, ah, oh, the Old Testament, that's the law, right? That's, that's back when God used to deal with people according to the law. I don't, and besides that, there's a lot of technical stuff and names and, and all kinds of stuff I don't really understand. So I just kind of avoid the Old Testament. I was talking to somebody this week, and they were referring to another pastor that I haven't met. And they were telling me, oh, yeah, he's a nice guy, but 
He gets, he gets stuck in the Old Testament. He teaches out of the Old Testament. And, you know, the person was, like, disappointed. That that's, I, thought, I thought, I'm going to get along great with this guy. Wonderful. That's beautiful. That means he understands that the whole Bible ties together, and the foundation is found in the Old Testament. Guys, you understand, Christianity is a faith that has Hebrew roots. And we're not separated from those roots. We grow out of those roots. So the Old Testament covenant that God had with his people showed us something remarkable about God's character. Unusual, unprecedented, amazing. And that is, it's the heart of God to relentlessly pursue those whom he has chosen to covenant with, no matter how wayward they become, no matter what sin enters their heart, no matter how they depart from him and turn their back on him. God is faithful even when his people are faithless. That's, guys, that's the character of God. That's who he is. That's his nature. You see, that relentless part of the pursuit that never gives up, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Because it's relentless. It doesn't give up. The third thing we learned about chesed in the scriptures is it's sometimes, or excuse me, it's something that's always used to somebody who does not deserve it. It's always something that's undeserved in the scriptures. you know what undeserved means, right? That's like there's something that's a benefit to you and it's given to you even though you don't deserve it. And a matter of fact, as we read the context of this principle in the scriptures, here's what we learn. Most often, not only did they not deserve it, but they did deserve something far worse. It's not just that they, they should miss his goodness and his love. It's that they really, not only do they miss his love, but they really should be judged. They really should be, they should, they should be persecuted. They should be disciplined. They should be ostracized. And you, you and me, we would, turn, we would say, oh, that's enough. You're going, you're out of here. I'm done with you. You made bad choices. But that's not this word that shows us who our God is. It's mercy. It's a kind of love that comes regardless. Before we get too carried away talking about God's grace and mercy and love without any balance, you need to understand this. I studied this week to double check to make sure this statement is true. Okay, There is never any suggestion in all the use of this word that God's forgiveness, that God's goodness, that God's mercy comes apart from repentance. That means that even though in the scriptures when this word is used, God offers to give them mercy, to give them his love even though they don't deserve it, it never comes without them first repenting and coming back to him. That's an important use of the word as well. I want to read for you. I I did... when we do our trips to Israel, I try to grab hold of everybody that I can that knows something about Hebrew people and Hebrew culture and the Old Testament scriptures. Because when you go there, that's kind of a melting pot of those kind of people. And um, one, one time when I was there, there was a, a lady, and she's now become a friend of mine, who's a Hebrew scholar. And I, I was studying this concept, and I asked her, tell me more what you know about the word chesed. Because there's, there's so much to it. And as, as a Jew, as a Hebrew scholar, what is your concept? 
your understanding of this word. And she told me some, and then she came back the next day and she brought me something from an article that she had written for a journal. And I just want to read just a portion of that article to you about the word, okay? And it's, it's, already, it's already in the article talked about the loving kindness and the grace, how God will never turn his back on Israel and he will always pursue them even to the ends of the earth. Now watch this, listen. There is no reference to any sentimental kindness, and no suggestion of mercy apart from repentance. In any case where the Hebrew original is chesed, his demand for righteousness is insistent. And it's always at the maximum intensity. The loving kindness of God means that his mercy is greater even than that. The word stands for the wonder of his unfailing love for the people of his choice. And the solving of the problem of the relation between his righteousness and his loving kindness, which passes beyond all comprehension. You see, it's not that God ever lowers his standards of righteousness. And even in the times where he's restoring and, and loving and giving mercy to, to somebody who's been wayward and failed, like his people, it's done so with the proper understanding and the context that God is still righteous. And you can't get away with sin and waywardness. And sometimes there are consequences for sin and waywardness. But God still accepts us anyway. And he still pursues us with his mercy. It's amazing, this concept. Say it with me one more time. The word is chesed. And you got to spit too. You got when you do it, okay? One, two, three. Oh, I love it. Bunch of Hebrew... All right, we're learning together. I just really want that word to make an impact on your heart because it's unlike any other word. And we don't have a word that really describes this. But, but to do our best, we're going to call it mercy or we're going to call it God's loving kindness. Now, when we go back to Psalm 23 and you read, surely goodness, his benefit to you in the form of hesed will follow you all the days of your life. Why? Because he's the shepherd and you're his sheep. And even though that concept in its original application was Hebrew, was Jewish, we're going to see that it's fulfilled in the New Testament. And the whole reason that we're able to be a church and that we get to be part of God's great plan is because of God's great mercy. So this word is just as important to us. Now, we're going to go over four different characteristics of mercy to show what does this mercy look like so that I can look for it in my life? Where does it affect me? Where do I find it in life? We'll probably get through two of them, maybe three of them today, and then we'll finish off next Sunday. But to begin with, let's stay in the Psalms. To begin with, I want you to turn to Psalm 103. I want you to see that his mercy is great. We're going to use the, 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 what the Bible teaches us in the use of the word about his mercy. Okay? His mercy is great. Psalm 103, this thing that pursues you relentlessly of God's character is great. Now let's find it. This whole Psalm 103 is all about God's mercy, so read it sometime. It's amazing. It'll bless you. But I want to focus in, starting in verse 10, and I want to get to verse 11. Verse 10 says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great, mark that word, is his mercy, chesed, toward those who fear him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. (laughs) Oh, church, check this out. This is wonderful. This is glorious. God's mercy that follows you every day of your life is great. First of all, the word for mercy, uh, different translations use different meanings of the word here. They're all the same. Love, you find steadfast love. You find loving kindness. All those are words. They still mean the same thing that we're talking about, okay? This translation has it mercy. But, but let's learn what we can know about this mercy by what it's next to. So great is his mercy, it says. There's a character trait, a characteristic of this mercy. It's great. And the idea of great there is really that it prevails, that it has immense strength. There's great power. That's what that word means, great. Think about, you know, Superman power. When Superman comes, all the young people just looked up. When Superman comes and you say, well, there are just little people on the earth and their strength is fairly limited. Even the, even the strongest among them isn't capable to do nearly what Superman can do, right? Leap tall buildings in a single bound, right? To fly, to, to buy gravity, to, to bend steel and break things. We think of that kind of strength as so far beyond what's normal, what's average, that it's amazing to us. That's the concept of the word great here. It's immense I wish, do you see why we have to study words a lot when we study the Bible? Because these things show us a lot about God. That word there is, well, let's just compare it to the analogy that David uses. It says, for as the heavens are high above the earth. Now think about that. The heavens is the word for stars there. So, you know, if you just think of the sky above, it doesn't seem that far because in any given year, you're probably on a jetliner or an airplane of some kind going somewhere, right? And you're up in the heavens, or you watch NASA and you studied, we've been able to launch rockets and people to the moon and all this stuff. And so, so the sky and the atmosphere doesn't really seem that great to you. But understand that it's talking about the stars here. And the heavens, the stars are so vast that the furthest stars that we know of are billions and billions of light years away. I don't know how much that is. My mind, I can't, give any reference to how big that is. I just know it's so big that it goes on and on and on. It's vast, so vast that I can't even conceive experiencing it. You see the difference? That's that's the respective difference that this word great represents. It's not just a little bit better. It's monumentally stronger. It's huge. Well, what is it that's huge? God's mercy. God's mercy. Able to leap tall sins in a single bound. What's the biggest obstacle in our relationship to God? The biggest obstacle is always ourself. It's always our own nature that rebels against God. It's always our own weakness. The biggest obstacles between us and an absolutely perfect, intimate relationship with God is found right here in my own heart. And it's a huge problem. Think about the consequences of sin is eternal separation from God. He's so holy. He's so immense. He's so perfect that if we sin at all, ever, if there's any hint of sin in our life, we are disqualified from his presence. That's huge. That's a huge obstacle. And there's not one single person who can overcome that obstacle. But this is beyond human greatness. 
This, this mercy of God is so huge that it brought the Savior. God sent his only son to live a perfect, sinless life. Listen to me carefully, church. This isn't old news. This is the foundation of who you are and how much God loves you. So pay attention right here. Listen to me. He sent his only son to live a perfect, sinless life and be slain at the hands of men to shed his own blood, to give his own life, to breathe his own last breath, suffering at the hands and the ridicule of men, not because he deserved it, but because his mercy is so great. That's how great his mercy is. That's how strong, that's how capable, that's how immense, as the heavens, the stars, billions and billions and billions of light years away is so vast and so great. That's how God's mercy is to you. So I know some of us are thinking, you know what? I've just, I've failed. I've done it again. I've really disappointed God. There's no, there's no coming back from what I've done. Well, listen. That's not what the Bible teaches about God's character. What the Bible teaches in Psalm 23 is surely goodness in the form of this great, huge, powerfully strong mercy will follow you and pursue you all the days of your life. There's nothing that you can do that if you turn and repent to God, he will not absolutely, unconditionally return to you and restore you. There's no sin that's beyond escape under the blood of Christ. He's given us his mercy. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm concerned, church. I'm concerned that sometimes we, we, we get casual with this concept. Yeah, 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 I'm, I've been in church all my life. I grew up in church. I know, I know, I know. Jesus died on the cross, the blood, the whole bit. I'm saved. What does it matter to me? Listen, could you imagine what your life would be if you did not have God's great mercy? Just for a minute, not good. That only begins to describe it. No hope whatsoever. No hope. Impossible. Lost, drowning, no possibility of being saved or rescued, death, darkness, and suffering. Listen, for eternity. With no second chances. No ability to be restored and to be received and to be accepted and to be loved once again and to be cared for anymore by God. God being existent, being real, still holding you at a distance. You don't know the impact that that would have on your soul. It would kill you. It would kill me. But you don't have to know that. You don't have to know it because his mercy is great. It's huge. It's immense and powerful. There's something else about his mercy. If you turn back a few books to Ezra chapter 3, we find out that his mercy, not only is it great, <clears throat> but it's also enduring. We often read in the Old Testament about his enduring mercy. Or, think about it, his enduring loving kindness. Same word. Now, Ezra chapter 3, 
We're going to start in verse 11, take a little snippet out of here, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 11, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, okay? Here's the people of Israel singing to God. What are they singing? Well, understand this. First of all, when the Hebrew people came and brought praises in the form of song, it was usually in the response to something very magnificent, glorious, and unusual that God had just done. They learned something about God. They just received something from God. That causes them to come together and sing. That's why I told you this morning when you were singing to let your song come out of something that blesses him, something that recognizes who he is. Now, here's what they said. They're praising and giving thanks, for he is good. Now watch. For his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Your translation might say faithful love, steadfast love, or loving kindness. It's the word hesed, okay? For his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Okay, before we look at this, understand the concept. The concept here is that they had been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Why? Why were they in captivity in Babylon for 70 years? Was it because God is an unfair, unjust God? No. Was it because God is just unreasonable and he's impossible to please no matter what you do? No. Babylonian captivity was a perfect example of even though had God, God had done everything for them, they still had a wayward tendency. They still messed up. Their captivity in Babylon for 70 years was due to their own waywardness. So understand in Ezra, they've been allowed to come back and the remnant has been led by Zerubbabel and Ezra to come back and do what? To rebuild the temple. For he is good. For his mercy. Now watch this. Endures forever is one word in the original language there. It's it's one concept. It's enduring, but it's an endurance that always has an eternal component to it. It's never limited endurance. See, they're learning here from God that even in their wayward tendencies, even when they thought, you know what, we've really escaped and gone outside of the realm of God's ability to restore us. By the way, not just restoring them to a place of favor, but restoring them to their purpose. You understand what the temple meant for Israel? The temple was the center of the earth in Jerusalem. It was the place God showed up where God said, here's where you worship me. Here's where you encounter me. You're going to be the light to the nations, to the world. You're going to be my special people. But this right here in this one spot is where it all begins. God's letting them restore that. God's letting them rebuild that. He's leading them to rebuild it. Not only rebuild it, but bigger and better than it was. You see, he does that because he has this mercy that's never-ending. It's the idea, 
You know about the principle of the vanishing point? Mathematically, and I'm not a mathematician by any stretch, um, but mathematically, you know, there's that principle where you can divide a number in half, but you can, you can never get to the end of it. You just keep dividing it, and exponentially it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And, you know, if you just keep, I mean, what's the smallest distance you can think of, but there's still a half of that distance left. And you can keep going half and half and half and half, and it's an intimate number. It's infinite. And it's, right? That's the idea of a vanishing point. You look out across the earth, and you see a point where it seems to vanish. Or across the ocean, where the horizon is, is that point where you can no longer see. It looks like the end. But then when you get there, you, it's not the end, is it? There's another... 8,000 miles, and then you can see another vanishing point, and th- the vanishing point only appears to end to us, but it never ends. It goes on and on and on and on. It's only limited, hey, church, it's only limited by your perspective. What you are limited to see. And that's often true with God's mercy as well. We, in our mind, there's a point where it seems to to end God's mercy. Now, listen, I know you don't think that about yourself, but how about others? Oh, that person has just blown it. Not me, but Ed. He's like, there's no hope for Ed. He's, forget it. Why? Usually because he did something to me. And that's why I feel that way, right? And we, we get all sanctimonious. And we begin to think that, you know, there's something that you can do that's so heinous, that hurts so much, that, that opposes God so drastically, that's so unrighteous, that it can never be restored. I'm here to tell you, church, I, I know in our own understanding there is that vanishing point, but I'm here to tell you that the Word of God teaches there is no such thing, it does not exist. It's impossible for God's mercy to have an end. It's his nature. It's who he is. It's his character. And that's when he he loves people, when he created us to, to pursue and to relate with, that's what he wanted to display to us. He wanted to show creation that that's who he is. I'm telling you, that should make a difference in how you live your lives. That should make a difference for when you do sin against God and when your heart is wayward, how quickly and eagerly you should want to return to him, knowing that that's his heart and that's his character, never ending. Uh, Also, I think the context is just sweet. It's found here, his enduring forever mercy is found when God led the children of Israel back to rebuild the temple. And you should go back and read again the rebuilding of this temple in like shambles, destroyed. There's only rubble left. Do you know how many times I sit across the desk from somebody who's coming to get some help and some counseling? And we begin to look at their life and they begin to tell me what a mess they've made of a relationship or a situation. And they speak about it in terms of there being so much 
rubble left that they don't even know how. They don't even see. They can't even conceive how it would be able to put back together. And if it was able to be put back together, it would never be like it once was. I'm telling you that that's what we would experience without God's mercy, but we don't have to experience that because his goodness and his mercy follows us every single day that we live, all of our lives. That means that relationship that's all messed up in your mind right now, think about it. That person, what's happened, the past, come on church, dig in with me a little bit here. What could never in your mind ever be restored to what it once was. But that's a diminishing point. That's because your perspective. But you need to understand this. God's mercy endures forever. And it brings such hope and such restoration. That it can always be put back to its former glory. When God does it. Are there consequences of sin? Absolutely. And sometimes those consequences are inescapable. But it's God's mercy that allows us to experience, even, listen, even though we have consequences of our sin, restoration, and rebuilding. Hello. Amen goes right there. I have to teach you where to put them sometimes. I want you to look at this. I want you to remember what our theme this year is, what we're doing as a church. We're rebuilding the foundations of our church. The structure, how we organize ourselves, the foundations of being personal soul winners, sharing our faith and growing in God's word, the basics of foundation, and building bridges again with the community and with different people and with different entities around us. Listen, all of those things can happen to exceed any former understanding you've ever seen or known. Because why? Because his mercy never ends. And that's what God could do right here. And it starts with each one of us as we respond to what we're learning today and we hear that and know that of God's character. It's an amazing concept, God's mercy. Now I want to turn to the third one, and that's probably where we'll stop this morning. The third characteristics of his mercy, not only is it enduring, but it's also rich. It's great, it's enduring, and it's rich. Now we're going to turn to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, the New Testament uses an entirely different language that we have to interpret from. But you understand the New Testament writers, oftentimes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, used Old Testament concepts. That's why you see in so many passages of, of the scriptures, the writers actually go back and quote and cite Old Testament passages to show you. You see where I'm getting this from? They say, I'm writing this to you, but I want you to know where it comes from. I'm not making it up. It's not something new. This is God's way. This is who God is. And Paul, in his letter to Ephesus, is no different. He's writing in chapter 2 specifically to the church, okay? This great church in Ephesus, and he's teaching them who they are now in Christ. In chapter 2, verse 4, it says, God, who is, watch it now, rich in mercy. There it is. Mark it. Rich and mercy. Who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us. 
even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Now you understand, stay with me church, Paul's going to talk about God's mercy here, and he's using our salvation as the basis, right? We already talked about that. How great, how strong was his grace? Strong enough to overcome the huge, insurmountable obstacle that no person could ever overcome, sin. But God did it, why? Because of his mercy. See, he's, he's drawing back, he's saying, that's the mercy I'm talking about. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. The idea of rich there, abounding in resources. I mean, when you picture the guy who is so wealthy, I don't even know who, who he would be today because can't keep track. But you know, they have so much stinking money that they just sit on piles and piles and piles of it. And, and, and million dollar expenses mean nothing to them. That's like a nickel for you and I. You, you know what I'm talking about? So much, they're not just a little bit wealthy. They're so wealthy that, that it literally pours over, abounding in resources. There's nothing materially that they couldn't do. Nothing they couldn't buy. There are people like that on the earth. I don't know who they are. You pick one, keep them in your mind. That's the concept here of what it talks about when it says rich. Enough to purchase even the most rare and expensive things. And here's what he shows us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, okay, that's, let me tell you, that's, that's when you and I were sinners. And we were sinners and there was no way, like, God, I want to get to you. I want to overcome my sin, but I just can't. I'm dead because of my sin. I don't have, because I'm a sinner, I'm the one who did it. I'm guilty. I have nothing with which to come at you with. I, I can't, I'm out of the picture. I can't do it. Lifeless, incapable, no resources whatsoever left. That's what he's referring to. But he said, now his mercy, not only did it catch us at that point, God saved you when you were the most vile sinner But not only did he save you, he gave you something along with your salvation. He gave you, made us alive together. He gave you new life. This rich mercy has so many resources in God's economy and his character that not only is it enough to deliver us from sin, to save us, but it's also enough, once we're saved, to give, give us every single thing we need to experience something that no person has ever experienced apart from God. New life. Resurrection life. Life with the Spirit of God dwelling and remaining in us. You're capable of things that you never knew of when you were dead in trespasses and sin. You didn't even know that part of God. 
But because his mercy isn't just barely make it mercy, because it's not, well, it's going to run out someday mercy, but because it's abounding in resources, never ending and great, it rises us up in our new life. God gives us so much more than we deserve because we're alive together. New life together. I'm going to show you something. Hold on, folks. little pinch here. You ready? See, when you're alive together in Christ, that means that when somebody offends you and somebody mistreats you and somebody doesn't understand you properly, that you still continue to love them and draw close to them and remain in relationship with them. Why? Because you have new life together in him. And that's what it means. You see what an affront to God's grace it is if we've been saved and delivered from death and yet we live our new life as if we were still unable to know God's grace and mercy in the way that we treat one another. We've been given a new life so that, listen, so that I can give you and express to you and relate to you with the same abounding, wealthy resources of mercy that God pours in me. So don't you ever tell me that you just can't forgive that person. Don't you do it. Because that's death. That's the old you. And that's an affront, an assault an insult to the rich grace of God. Yes, you can. Why? Because he forgave you. And not only did he forgive you, but that same mercy that he used, he puts it inside of your heart. And he gives you that same resource. Can you forgive somebody in your own strength? Absolutely not. Never. But this isn't just economy version mercy we're talking about here. They didn't get this mercy at Walmart. Okay? It's not secondhand. It's not used. It's not cheap. It's rich. It's absolutely abundant. So listen, you didn't barely make it back to a place of being in favor with God. He gave you all that you ever need. You are restored fully and richly to be used of him. God has given you many resources. Now, as we close, I want you to think about this, church. Tonight, we're having a family focus meeting, and we're going to look at restructuring our church for, with the idea of team ministry. You remember? We talked about that at the beginning of the year. Team ministry, organizing ourselves in teams where we serve together according to our giftedness, right? I want you to begin to think about what it is that God has gifted you and called you to do as part of this body. There's not one person as part of our church who can just sit on the sidelines. Every single person has a place and has a part. And it's a valuable part. Listen, I don't want you to think, some of you think this, because of your past, because of what happened in your life, that there's no place for you to serve in the body of Christ. That's a lie from the pit of hell. The biblical truth of God's church is that his, listen, his mercy is so rich that it raises you up to whatever God wants for you to do in the body to glorify him. You are absolutely, totally, 
perfectly in place there, no matter what you've done in the past. There you go. You're catching on. Amen goes right there. So that really opens the door, doesn't it? What can I be? What can I do? What can God use me for in my church? Well, there's no limit on the wealth of what God is doing in your life. And that's where you'll find it. God's great, never-ending, and absolutely rich mercy will follow you all the days of your life. 